So I wanted to let you guys know that today we have a special guest speaker here with us. And, uh, and so as we're reading those hot chapters of the Bible, uh, it's two weeks long, that reading plan, and we're kind of putting that sermon series on pause for now uh, and asking Scott Boren to present to us a, a single message. And, and, and Scott is a small group's expert, if you will, and author. I think his latest book was called, actually his latest book was called Beyond Small Groups, uh, From Programmatic Meetings to Flourishing Communities. And I know that because one of my sermons a couple months ago was named that. And uh, who came up with that name first? Was that me or you? <laughs> yeah, that was him. And, uh, and so the kind of the inspiration for that sermon came from his book and his ministry. He's also president of a nonprofit called the Center for Community and Mission. And uh, specifically what that nonprofit does is it seeks to help churches kind of answer the question, what has God done with us? Where is God? What is God doing with us now? And, and what is God wanting to do with us in the future? And how do we plan and prepare for that? Um, so very honored to have Scott here with us. Corey mentioned that he had read one of his books prior to, to this too. And, uh, and we even gave uh, your book out to all of our small group leaders, um, leading small groups in the way of Jesus. And so it's, uh, it's great to have you with us. And uh, I'd like to give Scott a warm welcome. Uh, join me in that. Thank you. Oh, and probably the thing that Scott is most known for is he actually got to go out to lunch with me. <laughs> so it's good stuff. Good morning. Great to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, I am a, a not a Minnesotan by birth. I'm a Minnesotan by choice. And I know a lot of people, when they say, hear that from me, it's like, why would you leave Texas and move north? Most people start up here and move south. It, it was, well, we, we moved up here twice. Uh, we moved up here, my wife and I and two kids moved up here in 2005 and uh, we served at a church on the east side um, of St. Paul. Uh, and, uh, and then we moved back to Texas for two years and then moved back up here because we realized we like it up here. We like you guys. Uh, you know, and uh, I don't know why, I just do. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's so funny because, you know, I've lived in Canada, I've lived in Germany uh, for a little while, I've lived in, uh, in Texas, I've lived here. Um, and it's like, I've, I've noticed patterns, and this is probably uh, obvious to anyone who just observes people, but if you go to the mall or you go around, you hang out with friends, you kind of see four types of people. You see, you know, you see the optimists, and they're just happy about everything. They're even happy about snow when it comes. And then, you know, and then there's a pessimist, you know, and then when the snow comes, the snow's never going to leave. It's just going to be here forever. I, I, I don't, I, after living here for a while, I do understand why Minnesotans talk about weather so much. Other places, and they complain about the weather, and I'm like, wait a second. You don't have weather like we have weather. But they don't understand that. I don't know. It's really hard for them to, to get that. Uh, I think I'm moving around too much for the camera. I'm sorry. I think I said I would stay within this boundary. Uh, so I'm out of bounds. Um, blame it on being a Texan. Uh, and then, uh, you know, then there's the, the uh, 
the realist. And it's, it's just what is is what is. It's just what will be is what will be. And, you know, they don't say much of anything. They just keep plowing. They're the steadfast. They're the, the ones who are going to make, you know, just do what needs to be done. They're going to just shovel the snow one more time. And then there's the pragmatist. And they have a house in Florida. They're going to leave town when the snow comes. You know, they're, they're the ones who are going to fix things. They're going to make things happen. You know, and throughout history, you can see, you go to Texas, you go to Canada, you go to different places, you're going to find those four types of people. And even in the New Testament, you find these four types of people. They're the, the optimist. It's like, you know, it, it, everything, even though the Romans were there with G, during the time of Jesus and the Romans were oppressing them, the optimists just kind of looked over that and said, you know, I'm going to become a tax collector and work with, work with the Romans and we're going to try to make something work and we're going to just be optimistic about everything. And then there's the pessimist and it's like, oh no, God hasn't done anything in 400 years. God hasn't spoken and he'll never speak again. You know those people. It's like one bad thing happens. I had an uncle. I have an uncle like this. And it's like, you know, it's like if something good happens today, then guess what? Tomorrow is going to be a bad day. And there are people like that with, with regard to life. And then there's the realist, you know, the realist with regard to the kingdom of God. And they just keep plowing. They don't expect too much. That, you know, they don't go too high. don't go too low. They're just right here with regard to God's kingdom and what God wants to do. And then there's the pragmatist. And this is, I think, one of the biggest things that we have in our culture now uh, because the pragmatist is about how to make something happen. The pragmatist takes control to try to make something happen. And this was in the New Testament times, this was, these were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were going to make something happen. And the whole re reason they created all these laws, because they thought if we could create enough laws, if we could get, get enough people to do what we say to do, then God will come. And this is the mantra of modern-day leadership. You can go to the bookstore and find all kinds of rules to follow to try to make life work. You know, and, and then something happened in the New Testament. And what I want to suggest to you guys today is that this can happen to us too. Um, something happens, happened in the first century in the midst of the, the realist and the optimist and the, the pessimist and the, even the pragmatists, something happened and God spoke. God spoke. Jesus came to his hometown and said these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because, I have because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you'd heard this during that day, if you'd heard this at that time, we've heard this so many times now, we're kind of numb to it. But if you'd heard it back then, you would have known what this meant. This was like a presidential inauguration, not just any kind of president, but the president we'd all been waiting for for hundreds of years. This was like Simba and the Lion King were suddenly coming, to, Simba coming back to life. Or if you will, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, King Aragorn saying, I'm the king. And everybody goes, oh my gosh, the king's alive. It's, it's like their eyes would have been looking for this, and, they, and, and when Jesus read this passage, their hearts would have leapt. 
The problem was it was in his hometown, and they didn't like that too much because he was a carpenter's son. And oh, by the way, he was born out of, he was conceived out of wedlock. So that's not kosher, and that's not great. And see, what Jesus was announcing there was not optimism or pessimism or realism or pragmatism. He was inserting something almost magical into the timeline. He was inserting himself into them in a way that was surprising and unique and, and mind-blowing. They couldn't, they couldn't fit him into a box. You know those people that enter into your life that you can't fit into a box, and they enter a room, and they're like, you can just, they mess up everything. They tell a joke just a little too loudly, or they're just a little too much fun for your liking. Or, they, or, the, or the kind of person who listens to you to such a depth that they, you know they're going to ask you a question that's going to make you squirm. It's not just one kind of personality that does this, but it's something that pierces into our gut. Jesus was like that. He pierced into people's guts and said, God has showed up. Because they would, when he read that passage that day, in their minds, they knew he was reading from and quoting from this humongous passage in, in Isaiah 61. And, and we only read a segment of this in Luke 4. But in, in Isaiah 61, I want to just draw from a couple of things that are there that can speak into how Jesus interrupted their lives. Interrupted the flow of what was going on. Because in that passage, is that that he was not only going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but to com comfort all who mourn. That when the Messiah comes, when God sends his one who's going to change everything, he's going to comfort all who mourn. And provide for those who grieve. And do this, bestow a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Now wait a second, that's too much. Because crowns are meant for special people. Kings, privileged people, wealthy people. I was, I've been watching this documentary on uh, Russia at, at the turn of the, century, the previous century. And, and the czars, the czar was not just a king. He was also the head of the church and head of everything. And the, the opulence, and it's like at that time, the, the wealth that was con con concentrated in one person was just beyond imagination. But 97% of the country were slaves. They called them peasants, but they were basically slaves. So you had 3% of the population that was educated and had any degree of money. And on top of that 3%, there was one person who had ultimate control over everything. And this country was one-sixth of the, of the world's land mass, or is one-sixth, it still is. You know, and you think about this, that's who gets a crown. But this is not just a crown, it's a crown of beauty. And this crown of beauty is for those who live in ashes. That's weird. That stands out. An oil of joy instead of mourning. An oil of joy, healing of joy, laughter, frivolity, freedom, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of, de of despair. 
They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of splendor. For the display of splendor. Beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise over despair, oaks of righteousness. These are metaphors of flourishing. These are metaphors of, you know, you go into the Mississippi River, there's a sense of this movement of water that's never going to stop. You can't damn it. I don't care how much you try. It's just too big to control. It's this huge gushing of water that, that we have going through our state. And it's like this metaphor of these, these things that God wants to, just, just to flow into our lives. And with Jesus, he's announcing this. And everybody's sitting there listening to him, is like, listening to him saying, wait a second. I'm a pessimist. Don't mess with me. I don't like life too much. I've been like this for 45 years. Don't change anything, Jesus. Or I'm an optimist. I'm just eternally happy. I mean, I am the way I am and things are good. But, you know, I don't want to deal with reality beneath the surface, Jesus. Don't pierce my soul. Or I'm a pragmatist. I control things. I make things happen. I know how to make life work. I am successful at what I do. Jesus, don't mess with me. You leave. I'd rather you not inter interrupt my story. My story is mine. Leave me alone. And into this, he's in, Jesus inserts his radiance, his glory, his sunshine, if you will. He pulls back the clouds and he pokes through and we're like, oh gosh, give me sunglasses. That's how a lot of people dealt with the light that Jesus was shining in that day. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to do with flourishing. This overabundance of life that could change everything. This overflow that never would stop. You say, that's just so unusual and so different than normal. But Jesus has something different for us. Something radiatingly beautiful, something overwhelmingly flourishing. A crown of beauty. A crown of beauty. Now I want to talk about three things regarding this flourishing beauty that Jesus offered the people in the first century, and he offers to you and me today three things that I want to introduce. One is, the first thing, is to receive the offer of flourishing. To receive the offer of flourishing. Now, what is flourishing? We don't often talk about this in our life. Most of the time, we're talking about how do we survive? How do we make it? Or how do we make it to retirement so that we can move to Florida? How do we survive the winter? How do we, you know, just get a little bit above fair to Midland? Because we don't want to be that sunflower that rises too high. Because we know what happens to sunflowers that shine above other people. Other people cut off our heads. So we don't get too happy. We don't get too low. We just kind of... Ride it out. 
What is flourishing? What does it mean to let God's life burst in us in a way that is beyond what we can know or fully understand? Now, we, the thing about this word flourishing and beauty, as soon as you try to define it, it creates problems. Like the word beauty. What is beauty? You know it when you see it, but you don't quite know how to define it. Something is just beautiful. It just is. Why? I don't know why. Why is my wife as beautiful as she is to me? When I saw my wife the first time, I was like, whoa. I, she just blows me away. My kids are beautiful. They are incredibly, un, overwhelmingly, they do something to my soul that brings me joy. I go to the St. Croix River and I go, <sighs> on a bright winter day, one of my favorite things is a bright winter day after a fresh snow and the sun is shining and popping off the, the snow and I go, wow. Something happens in my gut, and I don't quite know how to put that in a box and say, this is what, is, what beautiful is. It's like capturing wind and saying, I'm going to capture wind in a box. And as soon as you do that, it's no longer wind. But you know it's wind. You feel it. You know beauty when you see it. You know flourishing when you see it. It's dance. It's creativity, it's laughter, it's joy, it's frivolity, it's, it's sitting around with friends playing a dumb game till two in the morning. And you go, wow, why did we do that? And why don't we do it more? You go to a museum and you see a painting, or you even see a painting of a friend and you go, wow, what, what was that? I, that is overwhelming. The first time I saw Monet. And the light was passing off the big, not, not a print of Monet. There's a difference between a print of Monet and a painting. Of, the, the paint on a Monet or any of the Impressionists is just like globbed on. And the, the light will shine off the, the brush strokes. And you're like, wow. It's almost like the people jump out at you. And I couldn't move. Why? I don't know Why? It doesn't make sense. It's actually a waste of time to sit and look at a Monet or to go to the St. Croix River and watch the water pass by. And you go, why do we do these things? We, we, we meditate on them. We contemplate them. We, we see their beauty and we're drawn into their beauty. And it wakes us up. It wakes up our soul. It excites us and it fills us with passion. Existence Without passion is no existence at all. It's actually just survival. Flourishing is something that brings life to us. And the best way to capture, I think, an understanding of what flourishing is, is with the word play. Play is something that happens to us when we come alive. Now, I have a friend who's a, a head, he's the head cook at one of the universities here in town, and uh, he manages all the food for the, the, the food service at this university. And I said, but talk to me not about your job, but when you enter into the kitchen and you get to create whatever you want to, and his face lit up. 
Because that's play to him. Now, me going into the kitchen is not play. I just cook something to get it eaten, get it cleaned up, move on to the next thing. But for him, cooking is playful. These guys playing on their, their instruments, they just, to play, they're not just up here doing their thing, but people who enjoy music and, 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 and can play an instrument, it becomes something that gets in their gut. People who enter a garden, maybe you like to garden, and, and when you enter in and you put your fingers in the dirt, something comes alive in your soul. When I sit behind my computer and I start writing, even if it's something horrible, and half the time, well, 75% of the time what I write is really bad. But something, yesterday I wrote about a thousand words and I go, Wow. I don't even know if it's any good, but something comes alive in me when I do that. My son is an actor at the uh, Stillwater High School, and, and I picked him up. He, they're, they're going to Scotland this summer and, uh, to do this production of what's called Ham Luke, and it's Hamlet with Star Wars characters. <laughs> I don't get it. I can barely understand Hamlet much less Hamlet was Star Wars. But he got in the car and he couldn't quit talking because he's so excited about this new thing that his character, the director told him to do with his character. And there are these little things. And he, came to, he comes to life when you talk to him about whatever he's in, whatever production he's in. And you, this could be a million different things. You know, I think of the movie Hidden Figures and the, the Catherine Johnson was, worked for NASA and she was this brilliant mathematician, black lady who got no respect uh, back in the early 70s. But without her math, we would have never gone to the moon. She played with numbers. You could just see her mind do things. This actress was, uh, would just do things, depicting her as doing things with numbers that just were playful. That's beautiful. You may be an accountant and you start doing numbers and you go, wow, this is so much fun, but no one understands why it's fun to me. Be, flourishing is about play and it's about what births within you how God made you and it gets to come out even in the midst of a world filled with mediocrity where we are satisfied with cheap reproductions of Monet because we can't see the real thing we just look at prints we just churn them out because that's the best we can do. And what we, we live in a world where we are expected to look alike. We're expected to talk alike. We're expected to agree on everything or not agree on everything. Or whatever it is, we, we, we were expected to fit into a mold. And we don't get to flourish. This is the definition of mediocrity because that lack of letting God flow through us in a kind of dangerous way steals us from our passions, steals our love, our joy, and desire. God, in the midst of this, offers flourishing, offers freedom, offers joy to us. Will we receive this offering? The second thing I want to say to you uh, is 
we need to learn to receive the place of flourishing. The first thing was receive the offering. The second thing is to receive the place of flourishing. One of the reasons we have difficulty in receiving the offering of flourishing from Jesus is because we don't operate or live in a place that is made for flourishing. The gift of flourishing happens in circles, not in rows and not by yourself. Flourishing happens in circles. Circles are about life. We are born into a circle. You are not born into aloneness, isolation. We are or we're supposed to be born into a home with a mother and a father. That's a circle. A family dinner table is a circle. Every television show right now that you're thinking about that you love to watch most likely is built around a circle of people. Whether it's, if you're old like me, Friends or Seinfeld or something more recent like, uh, what's the science show that just went off the, um, uh, the smart people who... Anyway, I can't remember. Some people who might watch television here. But, uh, but even you go back to I Love Lucy, Lucy, Lucille Ball was not as funny by herself as she was with Ethel. Laughter is better in circles. Great comedians understand this. They know how to do this kind of thing called improvisation, and they interact with one another, and they create laughter out of it. The best place to learn is in a classroom that's designed in a circle. College professors don't quite get this most of the time. And I remember the first time I went to my History 101 class at Texas A&M University, and there was 150 people in that class. Didn't learn much there. Sports is all about circles. Play basketball, it's a circle. You work with one another. Baseball, even as a circle, even the most, it's pretty isolationist sport, but still, you got to learn to work as a team. The circle, the huddle, the everything about sports is, it depends upon working together and work. Work, it happens best in teams and to the early church. We read this passage at the beginning or the scripture reading this morning about from Acts 2. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property. Every day they continued to meet together. And where did they meet together? In homes. The homes back then were not very big. They were like very, very small. Frontier homes, if you will. I mean, the very small. And they're apartments. Small houses with no windows. And right next to one another with streets three or four feet wide. So everybody knew that you were meeting in a home. And you were worshiping and someone got healed or someone came to Jesus and, 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 and became a, a convert. The whole town knew about this. The, the nature of a home demanded that they be small groups. The chief's churches were small. They broke bread together and ate together. They did this in a way that required a circle. Church is best done in circles. Now, that doesn't negate what we do. We need rows and circles. God meets us in rows, God meets us in circles, and God meets us alone. But in our world, the circle suffers the most. The circle suffers the most. Now, some people talk about Acts 2, the passage we read at the beginning, about meeting in homes, and they say, 
That's the way to do church. And if you don't do church that way, then you're wrong. This is the, the law. They create a new law out of that. Or they tell you, this is the good way to live. It's, if you do this, you will live a better life. And I have found that my life in the church, I've never changed because it was the right thing to do or it was the good thing to do, but I've changed when I saw the beauty of what God was offering. When God sparked my imagination and stirred up my heart to see something differently. Not because it was just right. Because a, a law doesn't change us. And just because it's good for you doesn't mean you're going to change. But when you see something beautiful and evocative and alluring, our hearts are motivated to move, to move toward it. And what they experienced in the early church, as we see in Acts 2, is what I long for. I don't want another rule. In fact, I don't want another meeting. Who wants to go to a, another Bible study meeting? I'm sorry. We've Bible studied it out for the last 200 years in the church. I'm not knocking the Bible. I have multiple degrees in the Bible. I, I, can, I don't speak Greek. I can read Greek. I tried to read Hebrew, but I forgot more than I can remember. The Bible's important, but sitting around in a circle and just talking about what some Bible study expert tells us to talk about, and then we go, oh, what's... That Paul said this. No, Paul said this. I think Paul said this. Great. What's our prayer request? And we go home. Joy, hallelujah. My heart is not stirred. My brain might be pricked a little bit, but I want something that's going to stir my heart to live differently. That's going to mess with us. That's going to cause us some discomfort. Oh, wait a second. Now you've gone to meddling. The, the, so the story of Acts 2 isn't a set of rules to say this is the way the church must operate. The story of Acts 2 is to say this is what can happen if you enter into this story. This church can have a huge impact on the northeast area of Minneapolis if we let the flourishing of God enter into our circles. If we just uh, open our imagination to see God is alive in our midst and doing something in the midst of us because God meets us in the dialogue. God meets us in the conversations. God meets us when we talk about it from different perspectives and we see something that we did not expect to see. This is where we flourish, even in the midst of rampant isolationism. Because as we interact with one another, as we are in a circle and we become what God wants us to be, we can discover a new era of flourishing, a new era of, of life. The third thing, building upon the offering of flourishing in the place of flourishing, we must understand the source of flourishing. A circle in and of itself will not change anything. Stalin built his empire around a circle. So did Hitler. Every other gang leader, every other politician that's done horrible things, every leader that's done horrible things built it around small circles. Every thief, everything has is, is been... Because circles and relationships are how we are meant to live but Jesus says, 
I want to insert something, the source of your flourishing into your life that's different. We have done a lot of circles in the church called Sunday school, called Bible studies, called a lot of things where Jesus has not been the source. Curriculum has been the source. Information has been the source. Or the leader or the Sunday school teacher has been the source. I'm in her group or I'm in his group. You can live vicariously through that person who carries all the weight. That's not a circle. That's just a small group around a person. And Jesus is saying, I am the source. In Matthew 18, he says, if, you, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. The source of the circle is the presence of Jesus. We do not gather around Bible study. We do not gather around the needs of a specific person. We don't gather around self-help or how-tos. We don't gather around a complaining session over everything that's wrong in the world. We gather around the fact that Jesus is with us in our midst and he wants to do something in our midst that we cannot predict. This is part of what it means to meet in the name of Jesus we are meeting in the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when you meet in the name of a king, when you do something in the name of a king, you are doing it the way he would do it. If I were to meet in the name of some political leader, and I'm, I, that means I've been sent by that political leader to do something for them. That's what we're doing when we meet in the name of Jesus. We are doing what he would have us do. And we're doing it the way he, would, he did it, in the model he set for us. And one of the things that I think um, is a model for us to understand when we meet in a circle around the name of Jesus is summarized in two words. Get real. Get real. This isn't pretend. This isn't, I think, the thoughts that I'm supposed to think. Because if I th actually tell people what I really think about that scripture, they're going to think I'm a heretic. Or if I really confess the fact that 20 years ago, I was in a church and someone castigated me and judged me and I've, out of religious, a religious judgmental attitude. And that hurt me. That means I'm going to dredge up a lot of pain. But if I tell people that, then I'm going to have to deal with it. So I pretend. I put on a veneer and I hide behind the Bible. Or if I tell people that my marriage is dry and I'm not sure that what's going to happen. Or if I tell people that my children are teetering on doing something that I'm not happy with. Or if I tell people I don't want to come to church anymore. Or if I tell people I don't want to be in this small group, what are they going to do with that? So what we do is we end up pretending and we come back and we come back because that's what pastor expects us to do. It's what we're supposed to do and we hope that something is going to fix it. And the only thing that's going to fix it is when we allow it to say Jesus shows up and where Jesus shows up is it where we are in the real world. He shows up where you are right now. Not where you think you're supposed to be. Not where you think you think you're supposed to be. Not where other people think you're, what you think other people expect of you. God is not showing up there. 
God is showing up right where you are. Right where you are. You may be sitting there going, I, I, I have surgery in two weeks and I don't have faith for it. Well, have you told anybody? You know, no, I don't do that. That's not what we do. I don't, I don't talk about how scared I am. I'll ask for prayer, but, you know, to really let that out there. My son had, um, my son had surgery. Uh, it turned out to be non-malignant, uh, but we didn't know that going in. I was like, it could be malignant. It was a, a tumor in his shoulder. And I would sit at my computer for days paralyzed. I got no work done for weeks until it happened. As soon as that doctor said, your 15-year-old or 14-year-old could have cancer, I couldn't move. Now, I could sit there and say, you know what? There are a lot of other people in the world who have it much worse. I could be a realist. I could be a pragmatist and call up the doctor. What's the plan? Let's make this happen. I could be an optimist and go, you know, I'm going to have a good attitude. I'm going to have faith. Or I could be a pessimist and I could just I could get down in the dumps. And I just had to say, I'm going to be real, God. I'm frozen and I don't know what to do. And in my small group that week, somebody was sitting there being a realist. She was being kind of, she's like, you know, all pe people have problems. And I finally just interrupted her and said, thank you very much, but I can't handle it anymore. And if that's the path we want to go in this conversation tonight, I need to let you guys have the conversation and I'm going somewhere else because I can't. I can't be a realist because I'm scared. That's where I was. Where are you? Get real. In your small group, get real. Get real before God and get real with one another. And then that's where flourishing can happen, is in the real world, in the realness of life. God, I pray that you would wake us up to what's going on in our souls and we might share those with our circles that we might share those with those around us, share this with those around us, and it would you would bring to your light into that situation, and you would cause flourishing to happen in the midst of the real situation that we're in. God, we love you. Receive from you what you have in Jesus' name. Amen.